Hi, I'm Chris Hutchings and I'm your host. Welcome to the 10Q Interview Podcast. In today's episode, I talk to former Olympian 400 meter specialist, Mr. Jack Green. Jack is first former Olympian on the 10Q interview and hopefully not last and what an amazing guest he was. He was so open and candid and honest and actually shared so much stuff that us mere mortals who never reached a pinnacle of top sport will probably never ever experience or even more so understand. I took so much away from this one. I'm sure you will too. Jack really was uh, a terrific guest. If this is your first time here, I wish you a very, very warm welcome. I hope you enjoy this podcast. If you do, let me know your favourite bit on social media, at 10Q Interview, everywhere you may look. Don't forget to hit subscribe or follow wherever you are listening to this. And if you really like it, if you really take something away from it and you think, do you know what, I got good value out of this, I would be made up if you could leave a review, star rating on whichever platform it is. Honestly, it would mean the world to me. It would also mean the world to me, and I'm sure Jack too, if you share this episode far and wide. There is probably at least one person you'll think of when listening to this who you think would benefit from also hearing it. Make sure to let them know. Just one other thing before we kick off properly. It's only right for me to put a bit of a trigger warning in here. Jack talks a lot about mental health, about the struggles he went through, and the subject of suicide and suicidal thoughts does come up. A couple of times so if that's something that you'd rather not hear about i totally understand if you want to switch off now anyway that's enough from me now on to the podcast jack green a very very warm welcome to thank you interview i appreciate you taking the time to speak to me today well, thank you very much it's great to be here uh how's things all good as most people good busy i always good have to busy. make a point that i'm busy but it's good so it's not not a bad thing um but yeah busy work life and juggling everything that everyone else is juggling but good indeed man indeed but like you said it's good busy right better than yeah, better than having nothing difference. to do i suppose yeah yeah exactly good busy right let's jump straight into uh, question number one you meet a stranger and they ask you what you do what is it you're most likely to say to them i work in well-being and that is the first bit. And then most people are like, well, what's well-being? Um, so it kind of go into the piece of just trying to help people be the very best they can be and very fortunate to, to do that, really. What, what sort of response do you get to that? Because, and I don't know, a mass generalisation on my part, admittedly, but do people look at that as a bit wishy-washy? And just for the record, I don't think that's the case. I just... I kind of know how society is sometimes. Yeah, 100%. It is, it is perceived that way. It's seen as soft, fluffy, nice to have, uh, fruit bowls and trying to solve your problems with just yoga, which yeah, you need more than that, right? I agree. I've done well in this space because I come from a performance world. And I, when I look at well-being, I look at it really simple as you have to thrive personally to thrive professionally. And the personal piece is your well-being. So if you don't have that in order, you're not going to achieve everything you want to achieve. And when you start looking at it like that, we lose the fluffiness because we're talking about you being whatever it is you want to be, make X amount of money, achieve this, achieve that, whatever someone's goals are, rightly or wrongly, it's all Mm. around performance, right? And that's where, for me, well-being comes in. And that's how I'm trying to change the, the kind of dial on all of this. And, and who, who are you focusing, whose well-being are you focusing on? 
From a kind of career point of view, working at Champion Health, it's anyone and everyone, but particularly the disengaged. So most okay. engaged people in anything will always go and find positive services and products to support them. The people you yeah. really want to change is is those that are not engaged at all or the messy middle. Those are people that are in the middle, which tends to be the largest group of people that need the support, but aren't getting it because we focus on the engaged or the highly disengaged. So those are kind of people target with work. But from my own point of view, it's it's sports people. It's people who simply just want to be the best versions of themselves. And I, yeah, I get so much joy and satisfaction and reward from helping people just be everything they can be. I find it really, really rewarding. So interestingly, in my mind, when you said sports people, I kind of made this assumption that they of most out of most kind of um, groups would have quite a handle on well-being already. Is that a, is that a total misassumption on my part? They have a handle on recovery, which is sports version of well-being. It's prioritizing your physical health, your mental yeah. health, your financial well-being, social well-being, all of that. But most of them can only really look at the physical because okay. it's so obviously there. We can measure it really, really accurately. And it is your main job is the right. physical part of your sport. Most don't quite get the importance of well-being or the importance of the mindset and mental health, which is why we have huge stigma, particularly within sport around mental health. And that's where... I think I thrive as a coach is in the more holistic side of things of trying to value someone as a human being, not just as a as a sports person, an athlete, or or simply as your career. That's where, yeah, I think I I have the difference maker bit in in where I coach and where I support people. Is it is it a bigger problem in sport compared to business, or or maybe like a different problem? It's a great question. I think both. Okay. Bigger, but in different ways. So how I look at sport is sport is an extension of society. Yeah. So I think within awareness and education, more so awareness, we've grown hugely within, particularly in the UK, around mental health in particular, of understanding yeah. or accepting, at least is probably a better word, accepting that mental health exists. I think sport's just a little bit behind that and reacts to society that's also because of the interpretation of how you should be as a sports person in particular yeah. or you are the elite you are the one percent or even less than that so you are different and you are special and you are kind of treated that way so mental health and normal things don't always apply to you when the reality is you're just a human being that does something well so of course it applies to you the same things that apply to everyone else yeah, it gets talked about. I mean, I guess you probably cover all different sports, but in football world, you know, these these mega mega stars earning mega money and there's that assumption from a lot of people is like, well, if you're earning several million a year, how how the hell can you be suffering, me you know, mentally? Mm. Yes. Um, weirdly, actually, I don't know if you've seen it. I, my wife and I were watching the KSI documentary on Amazon Prime last yeah. night. And, yeah, I haven't seen it, it so. Might be worth a watch. Like I was, I mean, he 
he's kind of high performance in the sense of you know mm. what he does, and actually he does it in sport now as well. I guess so. He probably fits right. In. But we were watching, and I'm in no way trained to spot this stuff like you probably are. But I, I, we were both watching it, feeling a bit uncomfortable about how he's obviously got a lot of stuff going on in his head, mm. and whether he's, I'm sure. Actually, I'm not sure at all. That's a total lie. I'd hope that he's talking to someone about it or that it's someone's approached him. But yeah, it's kind of weird that people, I was going to say, do people know, I suppose that's a disengage. Is it disengaged people who don't know or people who are not interested? It's probably more that they don't know that I'm making an assumption here. But, yeah. but you know, it's probably that they don't know. They don't have the awareness and education piece, which I think is an issue in pretty much everything everywhere right it, it comes yeah. down to awareness and education something i want to pick up on that you you mentioned there was around being a high performer we are all high performers this is something i'm really passionate about it doesn't matter who you are you are a, a high performer so just because you're not on a podium or you know i'm very fortunate to go to two olympics and, and have a career as a professional athlete no one no one argues whether that's high performance yeah. But for me, if you are trying and something means something to you, it's performance. If you are trying to be the best parent you can be, the best friend you can be, you are trying and it means something, guess what? You're a performer and it's performance. Yeah. We all perform. It's the same way we are all leaders. You don't have to be a CEO of a company to be considered a leader or manager of a football team to be the leader, right? Or the captain. Yeah. Because you are a leader to someone somewhere. And I think that needs to be understood on a performance piece as well. If it means something mm. and you are trying, you are a high performer or at least trying to be one. So you fall yeah. into that bracket of having to deal with the pressure and the expectation and that quest for the best, to be better, to improve. That's hard world. It is. Actually, do you know, I'd never ever considered that. And as you were saying that then, I was thinking, oh, you know, you're right. I, I am a parent. And I guess every day when I'm trying to be the best parent for my daughters, why is that? Why do I perceive that as any different to a rugby player trying to, you know, give his 100% on a Saturday afternoon? It's that unconscious bias, isn't it, that I guess I, like most, have, I assume. It's that, because no... They haven't put you in a stadium and sell tickets to watch you parent your kids, right? So can't be it can't be performance. And I don't think they would either. <laughs> um, but but that's the thing, right? It's if it means something and you're trying, yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot to it, and yeah, for me, actually, what you do in your own circles at home in your own environments is far harder than what you do outside of it and far more important and has a bigger mm. impact on society than me running around a track and trying to win a race. Uh, who really, should anyone really care about that in the grand scheme of things? When I look back and I'm like, oh, it's just running around. It's actually what I do off the back of that that's important. So let's talk, well, so how, how do you get into this then? How did you, how, how did you become the well-being expert that you are today? Yeah, so I was the brutal, savage um, sports person that was incredibly selfish and would have walked over anyone and 
yeah, was very black and white, didn't believe in mental health, um, just thought it was an excuse for weak people and unsuccessful people. And then I ended up really struggling after finishing, I came fourth at the Olympics when I was 20 and I fell in the hurdles in those same Olympics. Um, and I was then diagnosed with depression, bipolar tendencies, anxiety. It was considered a threat to my own life um, and spent six weeks in the Priory in Birmingham. And this was all at a time when I was considered to be the next big thing. I was voted most talented sports person of a generation at that point um, in the Times. And yet I was struggling with that. And that kind of obviously opened my eyes in terms of the awareness and education to understand all the things I've just been talking about, really, and kind of put me into the well-being world. Um, so I became an ambassador for Mind and Young Minds. I've worked with the government on mental health reform and started being a keynote speaker about my journey to try and break down the stigma that I could quite obviously see at that point. And mm. then I'd ret- I was still competing. Uh, I-, I won world and European medals, even when I was being a mental health ambassador, because I wanted to show that you could struggle and have these these things going on and still be successful then i retired yeah. early at 28 became the head of well-being at bbc um so i was responsible for ten thousand people and 30 offices globally uh, very fortunate to be given that opportunity and yeah that was kind of my second career that that ended up in well-being and, and as i said earlier i think I've, I've been doing well because i look at it from a performance angle and i don't see it as soft and fluffy i see well-being as the foundation to better and high performance i kind of don't know where to go i've got so many questions that i don't really (laughs) like when you reflect back on where you are now to where you were when you competed you competed in two olympics obviously Mm -hmm. numerous world championships european championships and i'm assuming when you were competing again i'm making a lot of assumptions here and i probably shouldn't do so tell me if i'm wrong or anything but I'm, i'm assuming when you were doing that stuff your sole goal was winning, right? Your sole goal was being the best you could be. And again, I assume, I assume that run, the Olymp- running was the most important thing to you at that time mm-hmm. in the world. Oh, yes. But when you look back now, doing what you do, do you look back thinking what you're doing now is of greater impact on the world or more important, I guess? It's a very long-winded question. Or how, so, you, how you sort of re- reflect on the on the two very different disciplines, I guess. Yeah, and I almost had two very different parts of my athletic career because I obviously had, when I was young, went to my first Olympics at 20, was before I was struggling with my mental health in terms of being diagnosed. I always struggled mm-hmm. when I was young, but just didn't realise because I didn't know what mental health was and I was always successful, so it kind of papered over the cracks. And then I had a second part of my career where I won my world and European medals, top 10 in the world still, another Olympics and so on. And I did that slightly healthier way of trying to be a mental health ambassador, still unhealthy in many ways and still struggling, and then had the well-being career. But I think the point that I want to, to really stress on, on what you said is on the impact piece. Yeah, I understood with my career, in the second part of my career in particular, that athletics was a vessel for me, that my sport was the kind of transport to be able to make a difference and help people. Because if I was just someone who was struggling with mental health, I wouldn't get the opportunities to help other people as easily. Wrongly, because 
we're all human beings we all have journeys we all have experiences but because yeah. i i've done what i've done i get to open a few extra doors right so i understood that the faster i ran the more medals i won the more opportunities i'd have to make a difference and quite frankly i'm trying to do things from the right place now and for other people whereas at the start of my career it was solely about me i didn't care about other people it wasn't about helping other people overcome their struggles and adversities it was simply about how do i become the best and mine wasn't about how do i become the best me it was how do i just be the best and that would have included you know running over people to get there right um mm. so 100% what i do now particularly with my speaking i think has such a huge impact because only so many people watch athletics it's not that huge a reach and yeah you only get a certain amount of time on TV or doing this and that. I get a lot more time doing my keynotes or podcasts like this to be able to share yeah. learnings and experiences than someone see me wave at a camera for the first two seconds of a race. And then hopefully if I win, there's a few more seconds. That isn't actually teaching anyone else. That's just benefiting me. That doesn't benefit you. Whereas, yeah, being able to do keynotes, go, go into schools, go into organizations, get them to think about, how they think it's all mindset and and yeah. break down and give people permission and a permission to to struggle is a huge piece of what i like to talk about and give them permission to be human so 100 percent now i'm having far more impact than i ever did before but i wouldn't have been able to have this impact without the running so yeah they yeah, do yeah. they do marry up i mean do do a lot of top level sports people look at I guess the mental health sacrifice as just part and parcel of reaching that pinnacle. I don't think they're aware of it. I didn't plan for this all to be around awareness and things, but I keep saying it, don't I? But, um, but it's true. So you don't sign up and there's a contract of these are the things that are going to happen. It no, just but, but, but is it a case of they know it's going to be? I don't think they know be, though. That if you want to be the best, they know that it's hard. Ultimately, they know that there's sacrifices that got to be made, whether or not it's by, you know, getting up at five in the morning to go and do your training, or, mm. you know, not, or eating, drinking such a restricted diet that actually you you can't go out for dinner with your family on a on a particular time, or but actually all that stuff, I guess contributes, does it? Like to and obviously, but mental health is a there's a fine line I'm assuming between a mental health problem and stress that is required to put yourself on, you know, to push yourself that little bit further to be the best. So there's two points on this. The first point is no one knows how hard it is until you do it. Um, mm -hmm. Anyone who does is lying until you feel it. You don't know. Um, you can have an idea that feeling is different. The second point is, and this is something I talked about quite a bit recently Sport is not healthy. Elite sport is not healthy. Do you know I heard it's someone else say that the other day? Oh, maybe I stole it from them. Maybe that's where it's come from. But I've been talking about it loads. And it's the fact that don't try and make something unhealthy healthy because it's not possible. But what you can do is make the unhealthy healthier because you cannot be Olympic champion without a lot of unhealthy things around. Yeah. It's the difference between exercise, which is good for you, and training. 
which when you're pushing yourself to places you've never been, isn't always good for you. And I'm sat here needing however many operations and I'm 31, right? So let's be honest, the training twice a day, pushing yourself to where I did, isn't actually good for you. It's very different Mm. to exercise. So for me, it's then looking at that mindset piece that I love to talk around, around how you then make your world healthier for you because the sport isn't going to become healthier. That quest for to be the best that's ever lived, that do things that no one has ever done, requires something unhealthy. So don't try and make it That's kind of what I'm saying. That's what I'm asking. Like That unhealthy obsession is part of the mental health challenges, just saying as part and parcel of it. And that's where I'm saying that the mindset piece is you can do it in a healthier way. There will be an an acceptance of you are going to have some difficult times, but you also have difficult times as a human being. And the fact Mm. that that's where we need to also understand that you can feel bad and that's okay. And that means not from a diagnosis point of view, just from life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's a difference between struggling and a mental health diagnosis. And that's that's something we also need to need to keep kind of communicating as well because there is a big difference because as a human being you're going to have difficult times we all accept that yeah. but that doesn't mean it's a mental health diagnosis and they're very different but I'm also not qualified to really go into the huge details I'm not a medical professional in any way so no. but there is a difference between the two so when, so when you were performing and you started feeling these mental issues starting to occur I guess it's probably a two-part question so i'm trying to work out is is how or did you communicate that to the people who were coaching you who were mentoring you to whatever and then obviously if you did how how was it received what was you know was it received well and i guess the two part the second part of that is is has that i mean that was what 20 2012 2013 2014 you know sort of eight nine years ago has that changed do you think now with sports people athletes coming through the system these days so the first piece is i struggled for a long time without reaching out because i couldn't identify what it was i didn't know what mental health was and i didn't believe it existed so for a long time i struggled and it wasn't until i kind of got to that crisis point that you know it's that obvious there's a problem that you have to go and get help and um I was very fortunate to be funded at the time and and be able to see our head doctor immediately who yeah went and got me the support psychiatry support and and we kind of started on that journey so but I did I struggled for probably I always struggled as a kid with anxiety in particular and, and my mental health without really knowing but to the point that it was quite crippling at times but then success would overcome that and then no one would think there's a problem because you're being successful and you of course, you can't do the, the both things at the same time. So the highest then, of highs and the lowest of lows. Yeah, and it's kind of like, well, if you're Jack's going and winning this and being successful, so he must be fine, rather than us actually understanding that you can struggle and be successful. Um, yeah. It's more the sustainability of how long that lasts, right? How long you can keep being in that negative place and getting good results. But then... After that, so I was very fortunate, as I said, to have that support in terms of at the time that I kind of went public with 
mental health that I was definitely seen as damaged goods from that day on because there wasn't that understanding of what mental health actually was and it was seen as a weakness. Has that changed now? I think within society, it's it's definitely better. I think awareness is high because of all the campaigns and, and people speaking out, but the education is still lower and it, it will be lower because it's something that is a lot bigger than just awareness. But I think yeah. people are in a position where they accept mental health exists when it's over there in the corner, not in your life. But as soon as it happens to you, it then goes back into that um, kind of old thinking of, yeah, not really accepting it and understanding it. And Definitely. I don't think that's anyone's fault. Yeah, yeah. The worst mm. saying in the world of grow up here, right? Worst saying ever. So I don't know exactly how governing bodies are working. I've done bits of work here and there. Um, I think it's better because the generations coming through, it's an expectation now. It has to happen. Mm. So it's like in the workplace. You've got all these people leaving university, going into the workplace for the first time. They want very different things to the generations that are managing them. They expect meaningful work. They expect actually that work just complements your lifestyle rather than work is your lifestyle so i think with the new generation everything has to change but we still have a lot of yeah a a long way to go (laughs) there's a there's a tale isn't there of i guess it's the same as sports coaching it's the same in business you know the the older the coaches or the, the the leaders and managers of business are of an older generation, right? And until that generational shift changes a little bit more, and again, it's a massive generalization, but as the younger generations start coming through and that generational shift happens, then the viewpoint and acceptance and understanding and all that sort of stuff will, will just happen more so, as you, I guess. Yeah, it's so. generalization, but overall pretty much and that's where we're getting a lot of conflict within workplaces is is different generations groups of people having to work together that don't quite see eye to eye on certain things and that needs to be educated as well just around yeah what 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 is right for some people and and not for others so let me ask you then because i I had this conversation with a previous guest about this sort of topic and do you get pushback from businesses about introducing well-being to to employees i'm very fortunate that obviously people that speak to us are at some point whether they want to be or not there is a need for well-being within their organization so they're looking for a solution to do that and we can support them with it is every organization approaching us because they understand well-being or they accept well-being no no, but that's just part of the journey, isn't it? You know, well-being in the last couple of years in particular has skyrocketed and has become a huge buzzword. Yeah. So, yeah, there's going to be some time to understand. But I, I think it goes to the start of our conversation of understanding what well-being is and isn't. And if you look at it, hopefully, from my point of view and understand that and, and, and hopefully agree with me, because I think it's right that, it's linked to performance then we start looking at things differently and start accepting that it has a place that was going to be my point and that was the conversation i had with the the other guest was 
in my mind, it makes total logical sense to implement some sort of well-being. Actually, take it back even a step further. It makes sense in my mind for your employees to be happy and work into 100% capacity. Now, how you get to that is a different a different question. But if you if you don't have that, then all of a sudden there's there's an issue, right? It might be uh, poor retention of staff. It might be bad morale. It might be bad work quality, anything. And what we were talking about before was, uh, with the previous guest, was why wouldn't employers implement all they can do to make that uh, workforce happy or you know, at that 100% or as close to it as possible. And her business was around that. And I, you know, I'll introduce the pair of you after because I think you probably have a lot to talk about. But it kind of blew my mind a bit that businesses aren't being proactive in this to do this, right? We all know how much recruitment costs. We all know how much training costs and the rest of it. But for me, there's this real big disconnect between how much it would cost to implement a well-being project, plan, whatever, versus not. But it kind of surprises me that so many businesses are not doing it yet. We also are in a very crowded space now. So it's not just oh, yeah, okay. putting something in well-being, it's something effective. And yes. the hardest thing for all well-being providers and consultants or anything around well-being is showing that business case and return on investment beyond the Deloitte yep. report that says you get five pounds back for every one pound spent. Now, from a, a report that's just general, cool, I can accept that. But what about in my business when I actually have to put that one pound in? Mm. And there aren't many ways to show that without a little bit of faith and trust because it's it's human beings everyone yeah. needs to should not all providers it should be keeping people anonymous so we can't individually identify to be able to then figure out what's the presenteeism absenteeism all of these rates that are hugely there how do you measure productivity on an individual basis to be able to report that to an organization without also being intrusive and then probably yeah. damaging the well-being of someone by being that <laughs> intrusive. So this is the problem, and I completely understand why businesses will then struggle, is because if you're saying, right, invest X amount of money, I want to know it's worthwhile. And a yeah. lot of providers out there haven't been effective either, which then paints a certain picture of well-being yeah. in the workplace. That's not to say that we've absolutely 100% nailed it. I think we do a fantastic job. And where we really do well at Champion Health is the data piece. Because data around well-being is so hard to find. But we still can't go into the real kind of money figures of each, you know, by this one person using our platform for this amount of time, they've clicked on this and this, you've saved X as a business. Yeah. I can't show that. So, yeah, that's the real, whereas obviously most business tools it's a lot easier to show that return on investment but we True. deal with people and people are hard work and people are the biggest variable in the world i was just going to say that even if you had some sort of basic survey where you're asking people if they're happy that variable changes on the day hour to hour basis never mind day-to-day -day basis so Measuring and what's, sort of stuff can be tough what's as well. every every person has a different 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 expectation yeah. Yeah, perspective yeah, yeah. or definition of happiness so yeah, yeah and that's the problem so much of it is subjective so when you're speaking with 
CFOs and, and budget holders when it comes to around implementing well-being, I get why it's a hard thing to, to do, commit do to. The peop- do the businesses you speak to, is money or ROI the big driver or is, or, I guess on a percentage term, how much of it is ROI and, and finances compared to actually just wanting the best for their workforce from a, from a moral, ethical standpoint? I think most it's business, return and investment, financial is it okay? case. Um, I think everyone wants to do what's right, but business comes first because we still aren't having the measure of people are your business. So if we start bringing in KPIs at a business level of how are your people, as subjective as it might be, how you go about that. But if you start making that the real measure, then you're more likely to make change around supporting your people. But if the measure is just revenue at the end of the day, the easiest thing in the short term is to not spend money on your people. Long term, we know that will have obviously a negative impact because you can't retain your employees, you can't attract new talent, various other things. And they're they're not being productive when they are there. You've got a problem. But short term it's easier to just in the end so we've i've kind of took this I, I took this conversation a little bit into the services piece but the most effective thing you can do is culture and it's leadership and it's development and it's valuing people and bringing meaning and mattering to the workplace yep. things that we just kind of expect just to happen whereas even if you bring in a fantastic provider or solution if you don't have the culture there to be able to access that and feel comfortable and feel valued, you won't engage with it anyway. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a bigger piece and culture takes time. What's I think read something not too long ago that a real culture change takes two to three years. Yeah, I can believe that. And how do you, how do you measure it in that time, right? So mm-hmm. all these things there's a lot of trust that has to go in that you are doing the right things. And that takes very strong characters and strong leaders with a lot of belief in their action and their plans to follow through with something that might not be so easily, easily measurable. Yeah. How's, um, how's your well-being personally these days? Pretty good. Um, though being in the corporate world and, and working nine to five is a very different challenge to, <laughs> running around, yeah. but I love the flexibility and auto- autonomy of my life. I'm very fortunate I have fantastic people around me. I'd say that 95% of the time, I'm pretty good, you know, from average and above. And like, as any human being, I have days where I struggle and I feel overwhelmed or, or whatever that might be. Overwhelmed tends to be my, my big one negative that can crop up um, because I'll take on too much or I won't ask for help and various things. But overall... Yeah, pretty good, which is really nice to be able to say, considering the journey. And obviously, I've been on over the last 10 years, 10, 11 years or so. Yeah, I mean, I guess there were points in your previous life where you probably wouldn't quite believe you're at that state now, right? Oh, there were times where I I didn't want to live anymore and and was suicidal. So to think where I am now, considering I might not even have been here at at multiple times during my journey, um, especially early on, is I think that's that probably we talk about impact and achievements and success. That's a pretty big achievement right there that I've never never really considered because it's not a standard achievement, right? 
Um, yeah, 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 but that's pretty cool. That's very cool. <laughs> it's unbelievable. I mean, it's amazing. Just on that subject, I guess if there's someone listening to this who is in that kind of position where it might be overwhelmed, it might be something else who's really struggling or starting to struggle, what would be your what would be your what what would you say to them? I'd learned something from someone who was a tried to take their own life and, and wasn't successful on that and and they're thriving now and it's brilliant they're thriving and they said that you know doing anything to that degree was a case of wanting a solution to their problem but yeah. not understanding that obviously by taking your own life it's a, a permanent solution to a temporary problem and that's the thing. It's understanding that what you're going through, as horrible as it might be, is just now. It's also not your identity. It's not all of you. It's something that's just happening to you. Mm. And actually, through the amazing people there are in the world, whether it's in your own circles or the people that are out there advocating and, and volunteering and supporting, there are so many people out there that are willing to help and support. And if you're able to accept that, you realise there's so, so, so many positive and great things and people out there. Mm. And I think, you know, we talk about hope and hope being so positive, and it really is, because when you're struggling, all you can think about is what's happening in that moment and how horrible it is. But I promise you that yeah. that's temporary. And also it's being human means you're going to have those down days, but you're going to have incredible ones too. And overall, it will all be okay. And I think just understanding there's more to that moment you're currently in is so important. But yeah, that, that piece around a permanent solution to a temporary problem was something that stuck with me when when that was said to me because it was so important to understand. Yeah, it's very wise, very wise words. And I think as well, just to add to that, people generally want to help People generally are helpful. People generally want to support. I know I know that it's not easy to ask. I've been there myself where, you know, the last thing we do is ask for help. But, m you know, most times people will be like, what do you need? <laughs> yeah. Okay. If you weren't a well-being expert and a former Olympic athlete and you could do anything, money aside... What, what would it be? I always wanted to be a zookeeper or an archaeologist when I was a kid. I didn't want to be an Did athlete. You? I wanted to be a zookeeper or an archaeologist. I love animals. I love dinosaurs. And it's still very much the case. So, yeah, probably something. I love sport through and through. If I money were no option right now, no kind of barrier and all of that, it would be coaching. But I do love animals as well. So, um but coaching is probably what I, I think I do best and also what I enjoy. What kind of Having coaching? That. Like mental coaching or actual, yeah, uh, actual performance training? On the track, on the track, okay. working with athletes, helping them run as fast as they can. And I just love that. Working with people to help them try and be their best. And on the track is where I think I do it best mm. and what I get so much enjoyment from. But coaching in track and field in athletics doesn't pay the bills unfortunately and 
yeah, life is life and you have many other responsibilities and things to do. I'm very fortunate to still do something pretty decent. But yeah, I, I do miss coaching. I miss sport. So it'd be something like that. Did you do any sort of amateur stuff like or local local sports clubs, that kind of stuff? Every now and then. But I don't like doing transactional things as much. I want to be transformational. That's the reward, right? I want to be able okay. to feel that change and that difference um, along with the people that are uh, having that change and that difference. That's why I liked working with athletes where you're their lead coach. And I took yeah. uh, I had athletes that I was working with full-time um, after I retired. That I had one that became a world champion and made Olympic final, became Italian national record holder that I worked with. And I had some young young kids as well that ended up winning national titles and things all down in East Kent in the middle of nowhere, basically, where nothing happens. And <laughs> it wasn't doing one session with them that was rewarding. It was seeing them grow and develop and seeing what influence you can have on people over time. And it, I, I got taught the whole thing around, you know, it shouldn't be transactional, it should be transformational. Transactional yeah. is you give me some cash, there's something, see you later, there's a product, see you later. I don't yeah. work that way. I want to have change because that's that's the rewarding bit. So, yeah. I was just, I was just going to ask about, go back to your zookeeper point, actually. <laughs> so my, my follow-up question before, you, as you said it, I normally ask people, I was like, oh, you know, did you did you go down that route of ever exploring that as a, as a viable option? But then when I think about it with you I was sort of thinking oh I would ask the question obviously but I, I didn't know if you were a, a lot of when I was younger a lot of performance people who were really really good started that journey very early and actually mm. were laser focused and that was like from a young age so it was that the case yeah, for you? So, yeah I, I always loved animals dinosaurs not really interested in sport in any way I had a cousin who was a month younger than me that was huge football fan a fantastic footballer from day one and I was not particularly interested in sport and then it wasn't till yeah tried out for the district sports team at primary school ran down the grass track at seven years old beat everyone by a country mile I remember zigzagging across all of the lanes <laughs> as well and getting told like getting told wow that was really good but you've got to stay in your lane next time though I always yeah. remember that. And um, yeah, from that day onwards, it was I was writing stories about beating Maurice Green in the Olympic final in the 100. And obviously, Maurice Green was bolt before bolt and yeah. just an entertainer. And from that day onwards, every single choice in my life from the age of seven, it might sound strange, and I don't know why I was like it, but from the age of seven was about being an Olympic athlete. That was it. I did not care about anything else. And I went to, I didn't go to the local grammar school, even though I passed the test because the local comprehensive had a PE teacher that was a former GB athlete. So I was like, right, well, I need to go there and learn from him. And then I wouldn't do my coursework and things because I was just like, no, I'm, I don't need this. This will take, naively as a kid, this will take away from my focus of running. Yeah. From, from age of seven, that was it. I was going Where's to be that, an Where did that come from, head. do you think? My mum is a child and well-being behavioural specialist and she always jokes that... So one of her main things is obviously self-esteem and, and helping children with their confidence and self-esteem. And she always jokes that I was like Frankenstein, that she worked a little too well with me on that piece and just always had this huge self-belief and confidence that I could do anything. And 
but other than that, I really don't know. I've always, but I've always been a perfectionist as well to the negative point of mm. fear of failure, perfectionism that kind of drove that as well. But yeah, you have to get my mum onto the next one. I'm afraid to find out those bits because yeah, that obviously happened before I was I was conscious of it. That's just kind of strange, isn't it? I mean, seven. It's incredible, really. And if you you talk to people that met me when I was seven, they're all like, "Wow, this is you know, that's different." Well, so so interesting. Interesting you say that. So I had a podcast this morning with a with a with another guest, obviously. And as you you will know, my last question is about a question that the previous guest asked. Mm-hmm. So interestingly, the 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 guy this morning, the question I asked him was, would your junior school teacher be surprised about what you do for a living or what you do now or something? And it sounds like if I'd asked you that same question, the answer would be no, not at all. Yeah. I was very vocal about what I was going to do as well. So it wasn't a surprise to anyone who was within a certain radius of me. Um <laughs> Yeah, always, just from from the off, that was going to happen. Even when I wasn't, you know, I didn't start out being particularly great. I'd win county medals and, you know, solid. Oh, Jack's a good runner, but not like, wow, this kid's going to be the next big thing or anything. It wasn't until I was like 15, really, that it was, oh, actually, there's something to this. Mm. Yet, from age of seven, I just... I don't know why, I just knew it, even when everything would say otherwise or people would say otherwise. I I knew. Um, did you used to really watch weird. did you used to watch the athlete athletics on TV a lot when you were younger? Oh, ev- everything was athletics. I remember going into in primary school going into the little library that we had and finding a book around running technique and that's when I was like 7 and things. There was this one book around how to hold your hands when you run and all things that I don't that don't actually particularly matter too much, but I, yeah, every every opportunity. It's kind of mad. I, I don't imagine there are many people who have gone on to do what they said they were going to do at seven years old to such a high level. Well, that's why I'm really really grateful for my career because even though I didn't enjoy much of my career, which is a whole different thing. I got to do something that from the age of seven I wanted to do. Yeah. And that is, as you said, how many people get to say that? Not many. And as well, this was one of my questions I wanted to ask you was like, obviously getting to the Olympics and, and running the Olympics is an incredible goal in itself. How much was that goal amplified by doing it in, in London 2012? When I was, so I, I, let me let me just say because as a spectator, I remember, oh. I remember London 2012, and I remember the vibe around. I used to, I was in London, I was working in London, and it was like the city was a different place. It was incredible. The atmosphere. I'm not even talking about at the at the event. I just mean in general around. Like the, you'd sit on the train going to work, and you'd be chatting about it. You'd sit on the buses, you'd chat to randoms, and it was. And I think there's be, I, I reckon there'd be a lot of people who agree with me who, who live in and around London, either currently or in the past, will look at, remember that two or three weeks surrounding the Olympics and be adamant about how different the city was to 
to how it is normally. And I can only imagine that as an athlete, that amplification goes up again, like when you're actually performing in your own country and and how, I mean, I did, it was such an amazing spectator event. I just, I don't know, I just, maybe it's not, maybe, I mean, you, you were in, um, in Rio as well, maybe the comparison's exactly the same, I don't know, but was it different being in London? So it's home Olympics. I'm also 20 at this point. And I went to my first senior championships the year before I went to a world championships in South Korea. And then suddenly, you know, essentially the biggest, if you look at the biggest moment of my entire life was those two, three weeks. Yeah. It really, and it probably will be the biggest moment of my life till I pass in terms of from external and on a large scale, right? Obviously when I hopefully have children and things and all that jazz, it will be massive. And there's so many more things that are more important as I've, I've mentioned before already today, but it was terrifying. Genuinely, I have no or little memories from London 2012 other than how I felt and how I felt was I was completely terrified, full of fear because my whole life from the age of seven was about that moment Mm. and it was time to pay up and I was just terrified of everything that might not happen, that my, everything I've worked towards, everything I've was that because it was your first Olympics or was that because it was in London or both? I think it was just because it was my dream and I was there. And I got there so quickly with a lack of experience, a lack of emotional intelligence, uh, mm. a lack of failure as well, because I just got there. And I didn't have any way of managing my emotions for that scale of event. And I fell at those Olympics and it's because I was terrified. I was good enough to make an Olympic final and be the youngest Olympic finalist in 400 metre hurdles history in front of the home crowd. I was ranked sixth in the world. I beat the reigning Olympic champion two weeks beforehand. And then the people that won gold and silver, I also beat two weeks beforehand. And the reason I didn't make that final and the reason why I fell on my face because I was absolutely terrified and could not emotionally handle the magnitude of the event. Yeah, I can't even begin to imagine what was going through your head on that start line. I just didn't want to be there. Last place I wanted to be was Olympic Games, and yet my whole life, the only place I ever wanted to be was the Olympic Games. (laughs) Is that, in my totally amateur psychology then, do you think that that was a kind of a trigger to you sort of struggling mentally because you'd worked so hard to get there and you'd achieved it to a certain degree? Because they talk about, I, I think I heard it on another podcast, about is it like the gold medal syndrome or something where people achieve their goals and then kind of once they've achieved it, they don't know what their purpose is anymore, what they're working towards. Yeah, 100%. And a big point of getting to the Olympics was you expect it to be unicorns and rainbows and gold gates open, pearly gates, and you get there and you're like, as much as I was terrified and so on of the potential results and things, you also get there and you're like, it's just another track. I don't Mm. feel any different. 
I, you know, it's not like you've completed the game and at the end it's like, here's the Hall of Fame, game over. Yeah. It was just like, oh, it's just another thing. And that was also hard to take. But for me, it was just this fear of failure. This whole, I almost had a debt to pay as such. Everything I've done was about paying that debt in that moment. And it was all just too big for me because I was too scared of not paying it and getting things wrong that I never gave myself the opportunity to see how good I could be. And you only get one or two moments in sport. And because I wasn't emotionally prepared or mentally prepared, I was physically, I was ready to go. But because I wasn't Mm. mentally or emotionally prepared, I missed that opportunity. All because I had just a fear of all the things I couldn't control and the things that could go wrong. Um, But yeah, as you said, there was also that piece of, I didn't feel any different from a success point of view. It wasn't like I got there and mm. it was brilliant. It was just the same. And that's hard to take. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, I, I can't even begin to imagine. It's just, it's, it, it's just so far from anything. Most people get anywhere near, right? So people ask me about it and you go and you go to I do my keynotes and things and I'm like I will never do the feeling justice mm. not from a negative or a positive point of view because also walking out into that stadium when there's 80,000 people in there and it's like gladiator right you're like below the stadium and you can just see yep. that through the little you see the little bits of light peering through <laughs> and you can hear the noise and you can feel the noise and then you come out from underneath and then the noise follows you around, especially as a British athlete at London. Yeah. But I could never do that justice and I will never get that that experience again. I went to another Olympics. Rio was just a shambles. There was like no one there. It was just a mess. But and I remember having to say to the young athletes there that it was their first Olympics being like, it's not meant to be like this. I'm really sorry. <laughs> but um, But London, yeah, never get that. That's why I say, you know, it's that that once in a lifetime moment mm. that you can never replicate. No, no. I will move on now because I don't want to, <laughs> don't want to bring you down. Jack, tell me something about you that not many people know. And I guess I'll preface that question. You said, I think it was before we came on air, you said that you're pretty much an open book. And I guess obviously the topics yeah. we've just discussed back that up quite a lot. I am curious if there is much out there that not many people know about you. It's a, a tough question for me because, yeah, obviously I talk about the things that most people probably don't share yeah. so publicly. Do you feel, just sorry to interrupt oh, you, do you feel yeah. better sharing that stuff? Like, is it, and I mean, do you feel better in yourself by sharing that stuff? Because like, it's almost like a grieving process, right? Some people don't always want to talk about the things that, I've had the biggest impact like that. So this makes, I, I talk about this from a bad vulnerability, good vulnerability piece. And this is a Brené okay. Brown thing, right? So when I first started speaking, and I first was open and honest and sharing and so on. It was actually a really negative thing for me to do, both for me and for those that were listening, because I was just working my problems out in public on other people. Okay. I then was, that's bad vulnerability, right? I wasn't trying to help people. I was probably trying to help myself to a degree, but that's not fair on myself or others. Whereas now, because I've been through that journey, 
I've done so much work on myself and understanding mental health as a whole and and mindset and so on that now I I share from a place of strength where I want to help people with my story and it doesn't cut me in the way that when I obviously when it was raw and, and I didn't have that huge understanding and that's the big difference right so I would rather not share my story I'm quite happy to be private at the moment right I'm at that point but that's not why I do it yeah because by sharing my story I might help someone and that is so important and that's the reason why we have stigma is because people didn't feel like they could share I'm quite mm. happy to be that flag bearer. And it's a lot easier being that flag bearer now because there's so many people doing it. But yeah. my my argument on it is why are you sharing and what's the reason for it? Is it good vulnerability or bad? Are you sharing and working your problems out in public, which you shouldn't be doing because you need yeah. you need to come from a place of strength, of being able to help other people with the lessons rather than just, yeah opening yourself up when you you need either to learn about yourself or some support to learn about yourself so yeah that's the big difference um between those so i don't think i feel better for doing it i'd rather probably not but i understand the importance of it i'm glad i asked that question because i'd not heard that good vulnerability bad vulnerability thing but now you say it it makes so much sense when you're hearing people talk about stuff and it's because we reward we we reward people for speaking. Yeah. But we don't reward what they're speaking about, if you know what I mean. Mm, and yeah, this is yeah. we're going to have a little bit of a hangover from all of this openness that we are encouraging because we're encouraging anyone and everyone to do it, whether they are in the right position to do it. Yeah. And I'm saying that from a place of care because not everyone should be opening up because it's dangerous to themselves in terms of publicly, dangerous to themselves and to others. Um, But we've rewarded anything and everything because we just wanted to break that stigma. And actually, we need to do it in the right way and we need to really support people through that journey rather than just going, okay, well, you go and talk to the whole organisation because you've had mental health issues. That's actually a really dangerous thing to do if that person isn't in a certain place. Mm. I normally don't speak about that too publicly because some people don't particularly like hearing that. But if you see it from a place of caring and a place of trying to support people and make sure that we are helping ourselves Mm. and others, it's a really important issue. No, it is. It is really important and I'm glad you raised it because yeah, it is important. There's nothing else I can say. It's I'm glad you raised that. I, I interrupted you there and I apologize. But where where were you going with your not many people know question? Not many people know. <laughs> so I was trying to figure it out. That's why that's that's why you had to interrupt because silence is deafening on a <laughs> on a podcast. But I'm really I I'm super sensitive. And I think because I've been a high performer and I can be quite direct being male and so on, I think I've always been that way and I think I've always been a bit misunderstood because of it because I've just been hugely insecure of that sensitivity and myself that I've always been quite alpha with it. Okay. And I don't think people yeah, know that, that side unless you know me. 
that actually, yeah. as much as I talk about mental health, I still talk about it from a pretty strong position of what mental health is and what performance is. Mm. And actually, I'm, yeah, I'm as soft as they come, really. And I've, yeah, it's always been hidden uh, with insecurity and um, a mask of what you're supposed to be, particularly in a sporting world. Whereas, yeah, working more and more and definitely better at being the real me. So, I guess, I mean, I guess being sensitive is, is, is up there with mental health, right? And acceptance in the sporting world, it's not really a thing, is it? No, not at all. It's, it's seen as weakness, right? Well, you can't be successful mm. and have mental health issues. You can't be successful and be sensitive or caring or all these things that we've... And it's just perception of a word, isn't it? That's yeah. all it is. It's stigma of a word. It's like, I don't like the word mental your own meaning for mental on it, don't health. You? Yeah. yeah. But actually, it's like ruthless, right? So I love talking about this. Language is so important in what we do. Talk about ruthless. Everyone, when you think ruthless, most people will think in really brutal, savage terms about how to be ruthless. Mm -hmm. But ruthless for me is just being really strong and prioritizing your time and your energy. And you can be ruthless and yeah. still be kind and still care and value whilst being ruthless. So it's just a, another a way of reframing lots of different ways that we look at things. You look at failure. Failure is a negative. But failing is actually a positive because it's how we learn. So failing is just learning, but we've created it as a certain thing. So language and challenging what we think of certain words and phrases is really important, I think. No, 100% agree. And failure one's interesting because I feel like it's it's almost becoming a bit trendy now to talk about fail fast. And especially in the business world, it's like, oh, you know. Mm. And it's weird because it's probably come about for the wrong reasons. But I suspect, like you, I'm glad it has because I think it's important. Definitely, I think mm. we need to we need to challenge lots of things, and challenging is good. It's just curiosity, yeah. right? And that doesn't mean yeah. every time you challenge, it's because you're right. It's just learning, figuring things out, understanding things better, which is what we all need to do because it all lends into self awareness, which is something that I think we all need to improve on. Me too. That's my, if you were asking me the questions, that's my soapbox answer. It's about self-awareness. But uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to that one then. The next podcast um, that we hear from you. Yeah. Is there, is there a tiny habit or practice that has had a positive impact on your life or your work? I measure myself on effort. And that's all I measure myself on these days. Or try to. Okay. I say all. I'm human. I try. Um, I used to live in a world of results. If I ran fast, I was a good person. If I ran slow or not as fast as I wanted, I was a bad person. I was completely attached to any results. That's where my self-worth yeah. and my value was. Results don't tell you the full story. Results don't understand you're a human being. They don't understand yeah. the journey. For me, effort is king. So all I can ever do is give 100% effort. No matter what. That is something yeah. that is a non-negotiable. That's all I can ever do. The result is the result. Because I might be stressed with X, Y, and Z, my financial pressure, or you might not be sleeping well, you might only have 40% in the tank. So why would I expect a world record performance when I've got 40% in the tank? Mm -hmm. 
but what can I expect and demand that I give 100% of that 40? And that's completely changed not only how kind I am to myself internally, and we all have to live in our heads for far too long, right? And we all have far too yeah. many thoughts, so we might as well make them decent ones. But not only has it made me kinder to myself and more positive, but it's led to me being far more consistent because I'm not destroying myself because I'm getting everything I can out of me and not burning out. And there are some days I'll push it a little bit too much, right? And that's okay yeah. every now and then. But effort leads to sustainability in performance. And you were, I learned this from working with the best, some of the best athletes I've ever lived, world record holders, Olympic champions. They were not superstars every day, but they were consistent in how they turned up in their dedication, their commitment in terms of their effort. That's where they became great. So for me, everything is on effort. And if I can finish the end of the day and say, did I give everything I had today? And the answer is yes. I can't do anything more. Do you know, it's funny. I, I do similar. I, I, I have a very outcomes versus goals focus for exactly the same reasons. Like, why would I let external factors decide whether or not I deem something success or not? <laughs> and it took me a long, long time to realize that. But it's kind of strange how many people don't think like that. And I don't know why, because I uh, very similar to you, like I, I used to be, uh, you know, if I hadn't, my business hadn't done what I thought it was going to do that month, I'd, I'd beat myself up. But it could be for any number of reasons, right? It could be because um didn't get signed off by this person or this person. And like you, I changed my view to say, right, did I do all I could do? Could I have done any more? And if the answer is no, then it, it gets to a point, it's like, well, why, why would you why would your mood be relative to something that's totally out of your control these external factors i'm kind of glad you said that because it it's it's a big thing on my mind as well but it's it's amazing how many few people do work to that um or live by that methodology or that thought process i think the reason why more don't know is that self-awareness piece on your soapbox is yeah. it's a hard conversation and accountability is a massive thing and unless you yeah. know yourself and you are prepared to have honest, difficult conversations with yourself, you'll never be able to measure yourself on effort because you'll never give yourself the real answer. So, yeah, yeah because, yeah, if you're going to... We all know whether we've given everything or not. We know it's a feeling. We get it. We know. But if you're going to pretend that you're not, then it's not going to help you. Yeah, well, it's easier to blame something else. Yeah, of course it is. And it's an e uh, results are a really easy measure. They're right there, right? Yeah. That's that's simple. Whereas actually, yeah, it's understanding that long-term sustainability of effort and that the results do come from that. Yeah, they do. They do. Jack, I'm going to move on to the next question about superpowers. <laughs> I believe everyone's got at least one. What would you say is yours? Hmm. So straight away, I went into a sporting context, right? Of like, well, I do this on a track. I don't anymore. But I used to be. This was. When was the I last was... time you? When was the last time you ran? I retired in 2019. Um, uh, I just don't do anything anymore. So quite a while ago. Um, okay. I can't think of anything worse than doing a track session now. They hurt too much. <laughs> Um, but yeah, in terms of super strength, I think 
for me, I'm I'm super aware, and I don't mean just for myself. I mean I'm aware of my environments. I'm a bit like the Bourne films, right? I know where every exit is. I know what's happening and what people are there and what's what hat they're wearing and what shoes they're wearing. <laughs> but I do it from a kind of feelings and empathy side of things. Okay. Very aware of my surroundings and the people in it. And I just care a lot because of that. And sometimes it's a real negative if I let it go too far and not ever think about myself. But yeah, for me, being aware of of people um, in my world and and wanting to do something about about helping them. So, so how does that manifest itself on a like in the real terms? Like, do you? I mean, you, you obviously you sound like you are a helper and you like helping people mm-hmm. and you get a lot of um, satisfaction out of it. Uh, presumably, you can't help everyone. No. But if you're saying to me you're aware of you know lots of people in lots of rooms and stuff, do, does that mean that you will try to help people who, who maybe you don't know or are around you? Yeah, I'll always sacrifice myself for other people, and it's something I've, I have to work on. Um, I'm a strong person, and I can take a lot. And I tend to then lean into the fact that if I can take it and take it away from someone else, then I will. Um, And that's not always the right thing to do. Um, And that's where I get to overwhelm because I'll take things for other people. But there's an acceptance on the helping piece that I can only help people so much until they're willing to do something about it, that accountability piece. So it's that control the controllables. I can help you to hear, but unless you do something, that's that's all I can do. Um, but how that manifests is I'm always, I almost like think things for people before they think it. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm always kind of on, on the ball. I know what's going to happen next. I know how people are feeling or what might happen and kind of comes a little bit from my anxiety, <laughs> but always being ahead of that. So being able to predict things and being able to try and support people before it happens. And I think it all just comes from a place of, I struggled so much and I don't want anyone to ever feel like that. Okay. So can I, can I stop it before it happens or give them the tools um, or take it? So yeah, that's why it's my super strength because it happens all the time and my superpower as such. And yeah, it's something that is, always happening within my life okay let's move on to soapboxes what topic Mm. is guaranteed to get you on your soapbox sport i'm just super passionate around sport and duty of care in sport okay and supporting athletes obviously from my own experience when when you say athletes are you talking actual athletes or you talk about athletes as a sporting people in general from in a professional environment and how we support okay. them. And I have lots of views on duty of care and I'll always get quite excited about how do we make a difference to environments and how we, and leadership and how we create the right environments for people to thrive, particularly in a sporting world, because I love it. And I find it exciting okay. because it's, it's not an environment for environment's sake. It's an environment for the best possible performance and, 
yeah, that's when you get really excited, right? When it's that, but applying it everywhere. But for me, soapboxes, changing environments for people and doing what's right. Is there a, um, is there a club or organization that you have either worked with or familiar with that has actively changed their policies or ways they work or processes around duty of care that has then gone on to have some huge benefit or uh, like benefit beyond the just sort of, you know, the, the, the wellness side of things. Is there, is there any of those examples? None that directly come to mind. And it, it, it all comes down to individuals, doesn't it? Yeah. It's individuals with influence and an interest in that that makes it a priority. So very fortunate. Ben Ryan was someone that I met who worked with Fiji Sevens when they won their Olympic gold in Rio. And it was just little things he, in conversation with him around the standard you walk past is the standard you become. So it's looking at far beyond sport and the holistic piece. And I'm sure he did some things wrong within environments because we're human and culture, but just that for a sports coach in particular or a leader in business to look beyond what they are directly in charge of and look at the holistic piece and the human piece for mm. me is that's the game changing piece. And yeah, I always love that saying of, that he, he used with the team because it, it, it made them more than just rugby players in his case. Yeah. I mean, when you, so when you talk about duty of care and, being on your soapbox Mm. is there anyone who ever challenges your point of view or disagrees with your point of view Uh, i think general public wise most is probably the most likely to challenge and i think it's from what you said earlier around paid this or you're fortunate to do this other people would love to do it because there's the lack of understanding of what it actually takes and what that environment actually is and what you, that pound of flesh that you have to pay, it's always glamorized, right? Mm. So I think there's probably objections from that point of view, but it just comes from a lack of understanding of what sport really is. And also that sports people are human beings, no different to anyone else. Well, this is it. Pedestals. That's kind of what I find funny is like, especially going back to the footballer, the transfer market. And everyone's like, oh, I can't believe so-and-so is going to so-and-so club for like, you know, where, where's the loyalty? Where's the blah, blah, blah. Or they're only doing it for the money. And you hear that a lot. And then you always think to yourself, well, if you were working in, I don't know, wherever, Tesco's, and then some other Sainsbury's comes along and offers you 20% pay rise, like most people take it. Yet people have this such a weird perception of, it's like the other one, yeah. I listened to oh what podcast was it? And they were talking about football and mental health. And what they're saying is that because what people don't realise is this is just my job. I might be paid lots of money and I might, you know, get to do something that people outside think I would love to do that. But ultimately I have the same challenges, you know, I go to work with a group of people. I might not like all the group of people. I have a boss, the manager, who you know, I you know, and and the other senior people. 
And they said, and they've kind of bugging me who it was now. And they're saying, like, I love football, but it is just a job. And I had the same, you know, we are a group of people, like you are a group of people in your office. We have the same challenges, right? People dislike people, people argue with people, people have different mentalities, people. Everyone thinks that football, well, sports in general, they think it must be different. And it's kind yeah. of strange what people think that. And I think the loyalty piece is something to address of loyalty has to work both ways for it to be loyalty. People think it, people talk about well, yeah, it. Yeah, because you see one, you see way, one headline not... in one, one headline on the BBC Sport website that says so-and-so is doing this. But as we all know, behind closed doors, you know, not just in sport, in the world, the, the stories are very different, but yeah, if they're not getting the loyalty from their team and and pushed out the door, then it's I don't know. It's just it's kind of funny that people have this opinion that sport is so different to real life. Yeah, it's just an extension of life. That's mm. all it is. Just only a few of us get to experience that, which obviously is is amazing. But it is just an extension of life. It's an extreme of life. Basically, if you if you have uh, you got kids, I don't know if you if you've no, got kids, no, but not yet. Hopefully, hopefully one day. If you have kids and they turn around, you went, "Oh, Dad, I I really want to be an Olympic athlete or something." Would it be something you'd encourage, discourage, help? I do. Yeah, uh, whatever it is. <laughs> you have kids. You might tell me that you change your mind well, on this once you have kids. But I would. Look, I know that I know the in the end, if that's what they want to go, the path they want to go down, then I'm probably the best person to guide them on it. Yes. Okay. So the plus is, yeah, it's going to be tough. Most things, life is hard. It's just choosing which hard is worthwhile. And if you're going to choose that, at least you've got someone that's been through it and can support you on that journey. So sounds all right to me. No, makes a lot of sense. Best piece of advice you've ever heard? Lots of different things on mindset and so on. One I got from a coaching environment was from one of the best coaches that's ever lived that just said, if you want to be a good coach, work with the best people, <laughs> which I always, always love. So like, yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But is that a coach? Is But that always comes up in to my mind. Another one from the coaching environment was, uh, you have two hours a day to be a better athlete and you have 22 hours a day to mess it up. Yeah. And it always made me go, oh yeah, it's a bigger piece that there's a responsibility beyond that. So those are like the sporting quite brutal ones. So yeah, I'll, I'll kind of leave on those because they're, they're interesting. They might not be correct, but they are thought provoking. And because of the sports angle, they're definitely different to most things I hear on this podcast and elsewhere about advice. So, excellent. If we speak again in 10 years' time and you have considered it a successful decade, what would have happened? I will have a very happy family. Um, Whatever happiness is to them, that's all that matters to me now. So, yeah, hopefully I'll have a... A happy, healthy family, and the rest is a bonus. Yeah, it's funny that our family, not many people ask that question to say, 
a work-related answer. Hmm. And I always, when I when I first wrote the question, I was like, I thought that that would be the thing. It'd be like I don't know, a material thing, or it'd be a, a job-wise thing. And I don't know why I thought that because when I asked myself the question, it was also very non-professional related. Actually, the more people I'm asking it are saying very similar things, not similar things, are saying non-work related things, which I think is really cool. So, And then they need, then it's reverse engineering that, right? Okay, well, if that's success in 10 years' time, how are you going to make that happen? Yes. That's, for me, is then challenging it, right? And actually, that's when it becomes a business measure because it's what you're doing in your professional capacity that will facilitate elements of that, but it was also your professional capacity that could potentially harm that too. So... Yeah. What's your mission? I wrote my mission. I've got a few mission statements down here that's in front of me. I just keep just to understand what's important and the direction the I should track. be going. Yeah, exactly yeah. that. Fair enough. Final question for you then. It's a bit of a weird question. <laughs> so, I, so I get like, I get, obviously I get um, different questions from different people. Some are serious, some are not. Um, the question for you is what angers you most in the world great question how many people can I offend in one answer is the first thing that comes to, to mind here quite <laughs> possibly I I absolutely hate that tracksuits have become the normal wear of life <laughs> <laughs> Do you? that's what Why? i had to wear one i had to wear it for a job that was basically my suit right mm-hmm. it was my suit every day i just don't like it i just think we can all do a bit better so there you go that's i don't know why story. that when, came to mind when i when i was younger for a little while i wanted to be a pe teacher and i did pe gcse at school and i was like just looked like the coolest job to me it was like obviously you know but one of the things was because I didn't want to wear a suit and I wanted to wear <laughs> I wanted to wear a track suit or or I wanted to shorts shorts is yeah shorts that's different yeah short well shorts and track just I didn't want to wear a suit and I was like oh looking at the PE teachers in their track suits and their shorts and their whatever I was like oh that looks like the business doesn't that it's look funny now it's yeah yeah yeah, now it's uh, it's it's more that I've got no problem with tracksuits because I still, when I'm training or whatever. But that's where they should stay, I think. I don't know why that. I can feel the <laughs> anger bubbling as well. And what a silly thing can to you? be angry about. Yeah, just like it should just stay. And I mean like the whole combo, not one okay. or the other. The whole combo. Um, tracksuits yeah. is a fashion item. Yeah think so there are so many things i could have been angry about in the world but i chose that so well that's what i when i when he told me the question i don't think i'd have guessed that tracksuits was the uh the kicker (laughs) depending when you asked me i'm not sure if that would have been my answer but for some reason it is today and on that note jack green we will end this podcast before you get too angry (laughs) Jack, I very much enjoyed getting to know you, hearing your story and asking you lots of ridiculous questions about the Olympics, which uh, 
I guess you probably get bored of, but it's one of the, the crosses you've got to bear, I guess, as a former Olympian. If anyone wants to come and say hi or check out your work or, you know, find out a bit more about you, where, where's the best place for me to point them in the show notes? Yeah, so I'm only on LinkedIn. I deleted everything else when I retired. Did you? Because, yeah, it's just not healthy. Um, took too much of my time. So I wanted to be present. Healthy but... as in because it was the, the trolling aspect of social media or just general uh, compar- maintenance? Of comparisons, maintenance, all these things that, yeah, social media is very, very positive if used correctly, but it's predominantly not. So I made the decision to focus on who and what was important, and that was people in my direct circle. And the only way I could spend time with them was being in the moment, not on social media. So other than LinkedIn, I don't have anything. But I have LinkedIn for professional reasons and to connect mm-hmm. with people and still share the journey. So that is where I can be found and yeah, always open messages and happy to chat with people. Okay, I will link to that below. Jack Green, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. That was Thank You Interview with Jack Green. If you made it to the end, thank you. I hope you enjoyed it. I'd love to know what you think. Feel free to share any thoughts on any of the social channels at 10Q Interview everywhere. That's all from me for now. Make sure you hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this. And as I mentioned in the introduction, if you did get some value out of this, if you did enjoy it, if you did like any part of it, any reviews you want to leave or star ratings on your podcast provider, honestly, would mean the world to me. As I said, that's all from me for now. The next 10Q Interview episode will be live in your feed very, very soon. Thank you. Take care.